We had been very much interested in the Walunka ceremonies and were anxious to see for ourselves the snake's home and the sacred spots around it. So we proposed to the old men of the totem group that they should take us there. They readily fell in with our suggestion. As we rode slowly along, the old men were continually talking about the natural features associated with various totemic ancestors and pointing out to us every feature that interested them. We realised, more fully perhaps than we ever have done before, what these old traditions meant to them and could almost believe, with them, that the ancestral spirits were actually wandering around us as we fell asleep, surrounded by the very trees, rocks and waterholes in which they lived. Baldwin Spencer, 1901. Sir Sidney Kidman began buying up big around Alice Springs in the mid-1890s, successfully grazing cattle in what had previously been seen as impenetrable, untamable desert. But the scientists, too, had an interest in what lay over the ranges. The first serious scientific inland expedition was privately funded by mining magnate William Horne and headed by Professor of Biology at Melbourne University, Baldwin Spencer. His field notes outlined the challenges of the trek, much of which was spent riding on a camel. Lunch, he complained, was a choice of bread, meat and flies, or bread, meat and sand. But Spencer marked the beginning of a change in attitude, and it wasn't about gold or agricultural land. The expedition was interested in what the desert was, in and of itself. Here's Mike Smith, archaeologist and environmental historian at the Australian National Museum. Really it was, it was in the backwash of development or settlement. 1872 with the Overland Telegraph Line, you had enormous development right through the central part of the continent. The pastoral frontier surged forward 800 kilometres or so in just two or three years. Uh, and in the aftermath of this, by the 1890s, you got the first major scientific expedition to the desert driven by curiosity to look to see if there were relict plant and animal species, driven by the need perhaps to understand Aboriginal society. And I'm thinking about the, of the 1894 Horn Scientific Exploring Expedition, uh, which included Baldwin Spencer, a Cambridge-trained biologist who became the director of the Melbourne Museum at the time, but also became the author of the classic ethnographies of Central Australia, the, the Aranda. And so really scientific exploration, like, like a lot of scientific work, was following development rather than being a sort of harbinger of development. Yeah, my name is Alison Anderson. I'm from Papania. Went to school there and lived there and was born at House Bluff just over the range and was a little nomad that roamed from community to community from a really early age. My mum was a Barunda woman and uh, my father was Walpri and uh, my grandfather was a Luritja man and so we grew up in that area because that's our traditional land. My grandfather was a real old character, you know, old Bert um, Nyanayana Jakamara. He told me about how they lived at Hermansburg with the missionaries and uh, lived on rations. He used to work going across to the salt lakes and um, working with cattle and uh, working with the missionaries on building the road to Haas Bluff and, you know, the stories that he told me was really, really harsh, drought countries, you know, where you couldn't find bush tucker and animals were scarce and, yeah, so they really, really lived through the hard times. My auntie had come to where the goanna had gone into this hole and I said, why aren't you going to dig it? You know, we need to get that goanna. She said, no, a snake went in after that goanna and ate that goanna. And uh, we can't see the snake, otherwise it puts a bad curse on you for the rest of the hunting day. And I continuously ask him, how do you know, how do you feel? She said, it's a different feeling when the crowbar goes inside the hole. There's not a goanna in there, there's a snake in there. Do you, do you feel that you've got that, you, that, that knowledge has rubbed off on you? Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, I can go hunting on my own now and do exactly what they did and what they showed me. And, you know, that's some of the things that um, we need to encourage young kids now to take on, you know, because it's part of your history. 
1894, when Bourbon Spencer took his group out, he also found a wonderful uh, relationship and one of the earliest documented relationships with Aboriginal people. And he formed a relationship with the postmaster at Alice Springs, Frank Gillen, and the conversations between Spencer and Gillen, I think, are some of the most important documents we have of, of early culture contact between desert people and Europeans. Libby Robin, historian of science and environment at the Australian National University. But why was the Horn expedition so significant? Australia hasn't been very good at getting philanthropic sponsorship for science and still isn't terribly good in that area. Uh, but this was a, a privately sponsored expedition. And that's interesting because at that stage governments were not sponsoring science. I think the most exciting thing they found was some sort of way to imagine Australia. And I think Spencer's imagination of Australia in terms of three regions, the Aryan region, which is the desert, the Teresian region, which is the tropics, and the Bassian region, which is the temperate, is one of the first imaginings we have of a sort of geographical differences within Australia. My name is Olive Vever-Brantz. I was actually born in um, Alice Springs in 1933 in a tent in Lower Todd Street. My mother was half Chinese, half Aboriginal, and my father was a very tall Englishman. And I spent my early childhood until seven years old out on remote mining fields of gold, mica and wolfram. My father and his friend, Taffy, walked from Brisbane where they had to eat pig's food because it was 1930s, the Depression years, people were out of work, and walked to Adelaide and then they were making their way up to the town of Stewart. All my family walked. My Chinese grandfather walked from Palmerston, which was Darwin, to, to Alice Springs, and that was the only way to get around in those days. So were there many Chinese in, in Alice Springs? Uh, not a lot in Alice Springs was, was um, grandfather and his cousin, Archie. Grandfather was a baker. He had an eating house for bushmen, so famous bushmen like Bob Buck. Bob Buck went out to find the explorer Lassiter when Lassiter was lost. And those bushmen would stay with my grandfather and what they did, they brought their swags and they rolled their swags down out in the garden and that's where they slept. And during the day, my grandfather cooked meals for them. I remember a funny story with, I think one of the bushmen uh, once asked my older sister, Val, will you give me a kiss? And she said, no, she said, you've got too many whiskers. <laughs> yeah. um, what were the Bushmen like? Cheeky, obviously. Oh, no, they were, they were probably characters. A lot of those Bushmen, they, they were a European ancestry Bushmen, but they preferred to stay down where my grandfather was and rather than go up to one of the hotels up at the top of town. And what did they wear, do you remember? Oh, they'd, some of them would have beards and they'd have the, you know, the usual hats. You've always got to have hats out in the bush. You didn't have suitcases or rucksacks in those days. You had um, a sugar bag. Flower bags then became mats to put on the floor or they might even have been bedding. And sugar bags, which were a third of that size, would uh, become tucker bags. Well, the Horn expedition and Spencer's writing set the pace for a developing interest in Aboriginal people. Norman Tyndale was a renowned and revered anthropologist whose work spanned 70 years, from just after World War I. His 1940 tribal map of Australia had a significant and lasting impact on Western understanding of life in the deserts. Deborah Rose is an anthropologist whose work on Northern Territory land claims has given her a rich understanding of traditional Aboriginal life. 
Tyndale's research was the first to show that you could make a direct correlation between the size of the territory and the amount of rain. And this was a really interesting finding because it went hand in hand with uh, all that work he was doing on tribes and boundaries. Um, work that also showed that that the unit that we tend to call a tribe, that those units tend to be about the same size all across Australia. So what it means is that you have the same number of people in your tribal group, but how much territory does it take to support that group? And when you're out in the western desert, the territories are huge. And you can see on Tyndale's maps that as you go towards the coast, the territories are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And when you get right up along the, the coastal floodplains, you're looking at these things that are almost, you know, pinpricks on the map of Australia. So it's just a really interesting finding about how people space themselves across the land uh, in relation to water and how they constructed social networks of groups that had boundaries that were all of an equivalent social size. I think everybody who's done any work with Aboriginal boundaries has uh, come to the conclusion that they don't work like lines on the map and that even thinking of them as boundaries may be not the best way to go. But if we think of territory or think of country, where's my country? Where does my country stop? Every country is going to have permanent water. If you didn't have permanent water in your country, then your country couldn't support you, and you would be always a dependent on other people, and that's not how Aboriginal societies and Aboriginal boundaries work. And if you're a Western Desert person, your country is going to be huge. You're also going to have uh, access to a lot of other people's countries as well. So it really looks like Aboriginal people, unlike uh, Anglo settlers, Aboriginal people adapted themselves to the worst case scenarios. So when we think about sustainability, how do you live sustainably in a place like the Western Desert, or even, I mean, we might as well say in the continent of Australia? You do it by adapting to the worst case scenarios, not assuming the best case scenario. You see, on any Aboriginal land, there are boundaries. You cannot go onto somebody else's place. Well, one afternoon, it was always a practice in the afternoons to go hunting. Once the girls had finished their work and that late afternoon, we always went hunting. And I can remember that there was my mum, my sister Betty and me, and this girl, Fairy, who came down here with us. And um, anyway, you know, they've got those big... What do you call them? Ant hills there. This Aboriginal man stepped out from behind this bloody ant hill, terrified. Mum just grabbed the two of us like this. Fairy hit the ground. She didn't want to look at it, sort of thing. And um, anyway, Mum said, "It's all right. We get up now. We we'll go back." Just like that. We just had to turn around and go back because you're uh, you'd crossed the boundary. Apparently. Kathy Martin, traditional owner of Ilkma, near Alice Springs. Now, even in the 1920s, a time of increasing desert understanding, Western artists and writers still disdained the landscape. There were the Lemurian novels, imagined literary searches for lost utopias, but these bore no resemblance to the actual Australian inland. And nor was there a European desert painting tradition. Like the early explorers, they found no intrinsic aesthetic value in the desert. It was well into the 20th century and the onset of modernism before the artists saw the aesthetic possibilities. Writer and cultural historian Ros Haynes. Well, it was partly that they had difficulty in getting there, but they also saw no reason for wanting to get there because the desert was um, stereotyped as flat, immense horizons a thousand miles away and what was there to paint I mean the whole tradition of European landscape painting presupposes that you have variation, that you have uh, interesting trees, perhaps hills in the far distance that you have um, a stream that leads you into the painting or at least somewhere in the painting uh, you have framing trees and they simply had no concept of how you could paint an almost 
totally flat expanse. And some of the early painters who went with the explorations, they attempted to do this, but you can see that what they're focusing on is the aberration and the single figure who is there against this perfectly flat and featureless landscape. Such is the work of Becker. Well, even before Becker, Edward Frome, he was himself a surveyor and he did um, a, a very interesting picture of himself surveying out in the deserts north of Adelaide. But, of course, this was not something that was going to inspire other artists at all because, like, that was the end of the story. Lone figure in this vast landscape, that's it. What else can you paint? What sort of was the image that Australia held of itself, say, around Federation, 1902? Well, the image of Federation was very much a pastoral image. It was an image of Australia as the land of the Golden Fleece, the land where huge pastoral properties, which would be, you know, the size of whole counties in England, uh, flourished and produced this wonderful merino wool. Uh, That was the primary image of Australia and and of course, all of this is enshrined in Advance Australia Fair. It wasn't even the, the city image at all. And you certainly find this um, enshrined in art uh, too. Of course, Tom Roberts's paintings of the pastoral industry epitomise that idea that this is somehow an ennobling and glorious activity and very prosperous as well. As a, as a child, what did you do? Who did you play with? How did you play? We, we played the, the usual. We had Actually, we had jobs to do. We had to uh, water the garden, and the garden was watered by... You had to open up a channel, and the water ran right down that channel. Maybe it was a bed of cauliflowers. And then you, you closed that channel up and let the water run into the next bed. That might have been a bed of turnips. Mm. And then after the water had gone down that bed and back again close it up and then you'd get to the... So we had to do that. We had to work in our school holidays. He, grandfather used to sell vegetables, fresh vegetables to people and fresh grapes. He had three types of grapes and people would come and we'd serve them and and he had a nice thatched roof shed with lovely clean sand in it and that's where he, he put the melons before sale or the pumpkins or the potatoes or the turnips or whatever mm. yeah because we didn't have a electric refrigeration at all what did you do for pleasure <coughs> well we sw- we had a he had two tanks and he had lovely lovely fresh water pump to this day i can see the the fresh water coming up out of the ground and it was like crystal and i could smell the heated oil of the pump and it stuck in my mind all these last 60 years And so we had two tanks. One was for our drinking water and then Grandfather let us swim in the other one. Sounds like paradise. It was. It was. And and this lovely little Grandfather. (laughs) We we had a gramophone. You know, in those days you had to wind up a gramophone, play the records, and we'd drive our poor little Grandfather mad playing (laughs) records all day and he'd want to be smashing it or something. The next person who really gets to paint the desert, I think, Hans Heysen, who um, lived in the Adelaide Hills and who began to be interested in gum trees, particularly that was his signature tune, so to speak. And he tracked these up into the Flinders Ranges and he had been prompted to go and look at the Flinders Ranges as a possible site for a landscape which was amenable to modernism which hadn't been, you know, hadn't really taken off in Australia at all. And Heysen says, oh, all right, I'll go and have a look. So he takes himself there and he's quite blown away by the starkness of it, the clarity of the shapes because of the dry air and these sharp ridges of the hills and mountains and the colours. And he suddenly sees this as almost a prototypical modernist landscape and he's absolutely terribly excited by this so he churns out these paintings from the Flinders Ranges and particularly in Burkina Gorge and these became you know very much his style. 
He first became um, interested in the idea of going there because deserts and desert places came on the artistic map again in Australia for a very strange reason, because of the, um, the paintings of Gallipoli that had been done by George Lambert, the war artist. And two very particular paintings had a great influence in Australia after the First World War. One of them was the Gallipoli Landing and the other one was Road to Jericho. And in both of these, Lambert um, depicts these very stark hillsides, very angular, almost geometrical hillsides, scarred and cut into diamond shapes. And suddenly people thought, yes, this is really interesting in terms of art, even though, of course, they look nothing like the picturesque tradition. They do fit with ideas of uh, modernism and geometric painting. So there was this idea simmering, and it was partly this that inspired Heysen to go and look at the uh, Flinders Ranges. And so between the mid-20s and the early 30s, he went at least 10 times And indeed, he went once after it had rained and found that there was green grass and a few little shrubs growing, which greatly perturbed him because this was not at all what he was looking for. Uh, The desert was meant to be without grass, without green at all, and green was quite a a naughty disturbance. So he hopped on his train and went back home and said this wasn't the proper time to paint it. (laughs) So this is in stark contrast to the explorers who were only looking for green and really didn't want to see and almost didn't see anything else. I became sickeningly conscious of the immensity and emptiness of the land. We seemed to be looking round the bend in the earth. I thought it was just about the cruelest and most inhuman world that it was possible to conceive. Later, I was to be really scared. Scared that something in my mind would crack that the last shreds of my self-control would snap and leave me raving mad. With each freshening gust of wind, dust curtains whirled up from the bare red patches. They mingled with the low-hanging clouds, making it impossible to tell whether the haze advancing on us was wet or dry. Then a turbulent gust hit the flats, and the trees were blotted out. The air was as thick as a London fog. Then all at once, the sand began to move, and the ground seemed to be liquefied and to flow away in front of us like red quicksilver. Francis Ratcliffe, Flying Fox and Drifting Sand. Do you remember the droughts? Because there would have been droughts in the 40s, and how people reacted and felt I about probably, this. I probably wouldn't have been very aware of it. I can see in my mind's eye a 44-gallon drum. That was our water supply, (laughs) you know. There's a photograph I can show you, get it from inside there. What we used to call a bow shed, four posts, these boughs on the roof and maybe coming down the sides a little bit. And there's not a stone, there's not a hill, there's not a rock, there's not a bit of water, there's not a tree. And that was how home. And I look at it and I think, good heavens, there's not a thing. That was our home. I'll show it to you before you go. <laughs> Olive Veverbrantz may not have remembered the droughts of her childhood, but they came in waves in the 20s and 30s, the 40s, the 60s. They were terrifying and absolutely deadly for the settlers. But they also had a devastating effect on Aboriginal communities and people died in numbers for lack of water. Dick Kimber is a writer and historian who's lived and worked with local Alice Springs communities for 30 years. There's a Madra man called Jabal Jari and he told me that during the big drought they had to wait in the heat of the day and there was a rock hole where wallabies come down to drink in the dusk light. The animals had to come down to water and so they'd spear them in the night and if the animal wasn't speared cleanly and hopped away. They'd track it in the very early morning so it was still not major overtaken by birds of prey or ants or something like that but that that way they saved their energy. You're listening to White Bone Country, part two of a cultural history of the desert on Hindsight here on ABC Radio National. I'm Gretchen Miller. So it all comes back to water. 
And discussion about who owns and controls the meagre waters of our inland today is a hot political argument. Water for traditional Indigenous desert dwellers was literally a matter of life or death, so there was a simple approach to management and ownership. Deborah Rose. When we think about what it would take to actually sustain a really flexible system in an environment where there's not a lot of water. There's a couple of things that you can see logically people had to be sure of. One was that their own waters wouldn't be used up by others. If your plan is, this water is drying up tomorrow, we're going to such and such a place where our permanent water is, and you get there and find that somebody else has been in there and taken it all, you're dead. So that's not a viable system. You have to be able to say, our water is our water. Others can't take it. On the other hand, water is going to fall here. Rain's going to fall here. It's going to fall there. People are going to be chasing that rain. And they have to be able to say, if you've got rain, can we share it with you? And the only flexible and appropriate response to that is yes. So that's where you get these principles. Always ask. Don't drink other people's water, eat other people's food, invade their country. That can be dealt with as a really serious crime. But then again, because these relationships are intended to be sustainable, ongoing for generations and generations, always share. We do have stories of what happened when explorers started coming through, of people just crying and almost fainting with horror as the camels drank all the water. Bye had to just lie still and stay tight. One of those groups was a Pedderby group who, they were at a soakage. They, they were caught between their own country and the Walbury country. Again, this was this 1930s year. So to get them to survive, they sent two young men. They, they always choose people who are considered in an old-fashioned word, but it's a good word, it's steadfast. And it was their last chance to survive. They had to go into Walbury country to a big rock hole called Intamaru. So the other group whom they'd left, the old man had told them how to go. He knew the way and no one else in the group knew. And they didn't know the country properly. These other two had never been there. So he described how to go. And they gave them the last good water they had out of a soakage. One of the young men, who probably 15 to 18, he became too stressed to be able to continue further. So the one who could still go on, a man called Jabananga, he kept travelling on and he was end up he was falling down, crawling, passing out, falling down, crawling, and he eventually got to the waterhole. Now the Walpuri people saw him coming and one of the young men present there whom I came to know, a Jubrula man, he said that he offered to help and his parents said no there's this really strict law is you must make it into the water if you want to survive. That's the law, that's the land as it prevails as it were and so this Jabanaga staggered on and got there and they gave him water his prospective brother-in-law was this other big boy and he helped him to get water and then he carried it out to the young man who couldn't go any further. That gave him enough to recover and he went on to the rock hole to get more water while the uh, Jabanaga went back to the group with what water he had. How, how did he carry the water? There's uh, what's conventionally known by a New South Wales word called Coolamon but it's uh, in their country it's butter, a particular form of water carrying bowl that's not made anymore. It's very deep, very dished and to carry the water uh, the women conventionally put a pad of hair string or sometimes twirls of grass or tea tree bark, they'd put a head pad, a circular head pad and rest it on there and then they'd put a bit of grass in the water to stop it slopping. Well, I'm known as Cathy Martin. I was born Cathy Williams. My father was from these parts, and so too his ancestors. On Ilpma, which is the Aboriginal name for Bond Springs, this whole area 
right up to the boundaries up there, down to Painter Springs, Izilpa. And we are sort of the traditional owners of this. I'm camping here on my traditional site because I love it and I wouldn't be anywhere else. This morning, this morning, there was a bunch of green parrots come over and I think they were the mulga parrots oh, looking for water. Yep. So I had to go and fill up all the water things I've got for them. You know, this is how I live. I've got to see to the needs of the animals and whatever tree I plant or anything like that because my father always told me, if it's living, you don't let it die. You know, in the very, very old days, now this is when it was when people used to regard Aboriginals as primitives. You you had to get permission to go through somebody's country, otherwise you skirted it. My old grandfather used to tell me, well, whenever I saddle up the horse to go anywhere, where are you going? I could only go to a certain sort of area, even though the country looked inviting. And, and, and what about if it was a matter of life and death? This, I think this is how it went. My old grandfather used to sit down and talk to me, tell me things and draw in the sand and all this sort of stuff. If them were thirsty and they can't find quacha, well, you know, they, they can come and they can drink our quacha, but they must come and tell us like that. About the Musgrave Ranges, there is the same curious atmosphere of aloofness from the surrounding country. They look out, as it were, over a world which has seen great changes in which they have had no part. To walk alone into their gorges by moonlight, to look into the clear depths of their splendid pools when the noon sun flares on the rocks and the world is unbelievably still, or to listen to the dawn wind singing in the pines on their tops, brings always the same suggestion, a sense of things about them once familiar, but now long forgotten a haunting nostalgia that will not be shaken off. The Red Centre, H. H. Finlayson. It was in the 1920s and 30s that the Australian desert became a place of curiosity, not just for scientists and settlers, but adventurers and travel writers too. There were men like H. H. Finlayson, but there were also a couple of women writers who were finding desert inspiration the anthropologist Daisy Bates, and the popular writer Ernestine Hill. Ernestine Hill was writing in the 1930s and she was a one adventurous lady, very much in the tradition of the great English exploring ladies, of whom there had been very few in Australia, almost none in fact. And so Ernestine Hill set out to discover the inland and she travelled something like 100,000 miles, she said, and her writings were very influential because she was extraordinarily positive about it. I mean, she felt that the people and the immensity of the place were very, very exciting. She writes about it very evocatively. It's an exhilarating place. It's a totally positive experience. It becomes so, a, quite a tradition of this exploration of the great Aussie character because Ian Idris was also writing around the same time and in fact his book sold what, three million copies during the yes, depression it yes. was tr Australians were hungering for this kind of material they were and particularly they wanted to read about people that they could identify with as having it very hard and very rough but surviving triumphing that idea of the very independent battler who can make his way in the bush with just a you know piece of wire and and a billy comes together with the notion of tremendous riches to be found in the center of australia doesn't it when you look at towns like uh, lightning ridge and Coobapedi. Yes, and the idea of mineral wealth was what took over from the idea that we will have a flourishing pastoral tradition in the centre of Australia. There's no inland sea, there's no rivers, forget that. So perhaps the riches are under the ground. And there'd been a literary tradition of this too. Around the 1890s, there'd been all these adventure stories um, based on Ryder Haggard's King Solomon's Mines in Africa, where people trekked out to 
the desert had all kinds of adventures with savage tribes and terrible things happening to them, fire, flood, famine, the lot. Um, but eventually they, they were rewarded for their adventurism with some enormous gold mine or a whole mountain of gold or an underground mine, whatever. And, of course, the prototype for Australia was Lassiter, who was actually uh, a fraud uh, and who set up this fraudulent company on the grounds that he actually knew where this enormous gold reef was. And Ian Idris was the person who popularised the whole story in his novel about Lassiter. And um, he promotes this mysticism of the desert in this, that Lassiter dies because of a spell put upon him by the Aboriginal people. And so the idea of animism and mysticism comes back, I think, at that point into the desert story. So how were artists now dealing with the desert landscape of the 1940s and 50s? The interplay between European and Indigenous thinking is nowhere more apparent than in the work of two artists who are Australian household names. And here, the spiritual re-enters the frame, both spiritual ownership and spiritual alienation. Here's June Ross, an archaeologist from the University of New England. Albert Namajira was a Western Aranda man who had been brought up on the Hermansburg Mission, which was run by the Lutherans, and there has been feeling that Albert Namajira was totally Europeanised, but it's interesting because I think that as you get to know his art, it might be depicted in a very European way, and we might have an arrangement um, which is quite traditional, or we have a eucalypt at the side, a ghost gum, a foreground, a midground, a background, very often of the MacDonald Ranges. But at the same time, his choice of subjects are the areas that he knew best. Through his maternal line, he was associated with Palm Valley, which is um, depicted in many of his paintings, to Ormiston Gorge through his paternal associations. So even though they're depicted in a European manner, they're very strongly associated with places that he would have known intimately. So they are, they're very intimate. In the vastness of the desert, you get a kind of a closeness and knowledge of, of a particular, very small place. Tell me about his, how he used gum trees. Well, he had some favourite gum trees which appear, even though he went out and sat in the landscape, as most artists painting the landscape did in those days, he had particularly favourite gum trees which appear in quite a few paintings. So he was not beyond using artistic devices like choosing the gum tree with the twisted fork or the branch that leant over in just the right way. So we, we often see the same gum trees turning up in slightly different situations. I wanted to deal ironically with the cliché of the dead heart. I wanted to know the true nature of the otherness I had been born into. It wasn't a European thing. I wanted to paint the great purity and implacability of the landscape. I wanted a visual form of the otherness, of the thing not seen. Sidney Nolan, 1971. It's interesting to compare the very personal, intimate style of Albert Namatjira to the kind of spirituality expressed by another really famous desert painter, Sidney Nolan. Can you yes. talk to that? Yes, mm. I certainly can. When we look at Nolan's work, we have an outsider looking in. And Nolan went to visit Central Australia for the first time at the end of the 1940s. And much of his travelling was done over the country so he was able to fly across the country and get some sense of the scale he was able to take in the topographic features the primordial feel of the landscape so when we see his paintings from that period we see row upon row repeated hills that the sense of landscape seen from the outside um, someone who's awed by that landscape and he describes his feelings um, to Elwyn Lynn, his biographer, as saying, I wanted to know the nature of the otherness I had been born into. 
If it was George Lambert's paintings of the distant Gallipoli deserts that triggered Australian artists to start painting their own, it took another world war to inspire a more comprehensive scientific understanding. UNESCO set up an arid zone research program beginning with the war-affected deserts around the world, India, Israel, the Middle East. Reconstruction of the arid zone was part of a peace project, but you can't reconstruct what you don't understand. UNESCO asked questions of Australia that Australia couldn't answer. We didn't know much about our deserts in the terms of the sort of arid zone science reference that they asked. So in 1953, Clifford Stewart Christian went out and he set up an arid zone newsletter to coordinate the efforts of of the people who did do work in the in the desert areas and started to talk interdisciplinary about the desert across scientific boundaries. Because they had to report to the international audience, they had to do something national. You need to have action in India to make Australians sometimes do science. By this time, cattlemen were well entrenched in the centre. As we heard last week, settlement had been God's will to begin with and then mammon took over, which in turn became a spiritual attachment to the land and the nascent industry was entirely reliant upon Aboriginal stockmen. This was a culture all of its own and full of contradiction and paradox. Payment was poor, sometimes non-existent. Land was grabbed, sometimes through massacre. Yet the work given to Aboriginal men acknowledged an intimate understanding of country and in turn provided a sense of pride and identity. There are many, black and white, who mourn the passing of those days. Well, we're at old Owen Springs homestead and there are, there are two stories here that really interest me. Firstly, it's, it's one of the earliest cattle stations in Central Australia, established in 1873. So the first story is something about the speed at which a new people colonise a, a continent. I mean, from 1860 you have the first scouting parties through the region, just a handful of men and horses the barest trace. Ten years later you have construction crews building the overland telegraph line and you have cattle stations like Owen Springs being established. And if you were an Islander person or a lurcher out further west, basically the pastoral frontier leaps forward 800, maybe 900 kilometres in the space of two or three years. So all of a sudden you've got either on your land five, ten thousand cattle or you've got 5,000 cattle nearby. The biggest animals you've ever seen, much bigger than a red kangaroo, terribly exciting, eliciting all sorts of responses. Cattle, of course, are eating out native plants and devastating waterholes and disrupting the system, but they're also representing uh, a very welcome diversion, a real point of excitement for, for men. A uh, new source of food, new source of manhood, um, um, is that how it was received? Because at the same time you've got kind of massacres going on, haven't you, as Europeans are pushing their way in? The frontier is much more complex than just a sort of white fella arrives and massacres black fella story. Uh, it involves a lot of um, accommodation and a lot of negotiation and interplay between black and white lives and black and white histories with sometimes Aboriginal people allying with um, the pastoralists forming their own accommodation, jockeying for position within their own society. Yes, sometimes shootings of people. Yes, seizure of land. Yes, disruption to the traditional system. But, but quite a complex interplay. A frontier is not just a, a rolling wave of destruction. It, to some extent, it's also a confluence, like a, like a, a low point in a weather system and all, everything flows into the trough. And you know, I remember old man called... Johnny Lynch, you know. Yeah, no, he was just absolutely unreal. You know, he'd have his um, Marion William pants on and his shirt and his cowboy hats and his spurs and the silver buckles on his um, wrist and, you know, he used to tell the kids, you know, you've got to go and learn about mustering and, you know, um, building cattle yards. And he roamed the whole country, you know. He'd work at Derwent and now he'd tumor, then he'd go to Mount Riddick. And all the old fellas did that, you know. Even my dad did that, you know. He worked at Mount Riddick Station building yards and with my mum with just when I was a baby, you know, they were still carrying me around in the Coolamon. But they travelled this vast country on donkeys and horses and camels to get to jobs. 
soon as they knew that Anberla had yards to be fixed up or mustering, you know, the men would run for those jobs. They loved that kind of life. Squatters tanks, those uh, big uh, galvanised steel tanks, you know, they're like seven foot high and, and quite a distance in circumference. What I used to really enjoy as a kid was some of the art people used to put on them. Mm. Aboriginal people, mainly white people used to do it too, but mainly Aboriginal people. And it was always scratched on either with a, a lead point of a bullet or coals from the fire. And some of the pieces of art were absolutely extraordinary and you just don't see it anymore now, but it'd be a buck and bronco or yeah, it'd be a real flash looking fellow with a real flash mukata, a real flash hat. And some of those pieces of art were just, just amazing. Scott McConnell grew up on cattle stations where his father looked after the boars which watered the cattle and his mother taught in the station school and ran the store which handed out the rations. I feel I'm particularly lucky because I saw a real change in culture and a change in the types of technology used to operate a cattle station and the way animal husbandry was handled and the way stock camps ran and uh, I think that on the whole it's probably a lot more interesting and probably a lot more romantic in the old days when stations were run predominantly by Aboriginal people and uh, there was a lot of you know slow moving of cattle and uh, those types of things rather than the highly mechanised sort of system that's around today. So. Although it was some time after um, the 1967 referendum, you know, when I was a child in the early 1970s, most Aboriginal people in Central Australia were still on a form of rations. So they did get some money, cash along the finger, but uh, mainly it was still rations, which you know included tea and sugar and powdered milk and things like that. And also tobacco, quite in- interestingly. Um, I don't know... Uh, how that would go down today, but men were provided with uh, with log cabin tobacco for smoking, and women were provided with uh, nicky nicky chewing tobacco for chewing. So, and that was part of the of the rations kit. And then the ladies used to do some inter- interesting things to keep up their bush practices. They would get the flour and sugar, and sometimes tea leaves, everything, mix it all together in one bag, and then when they went back home, they'd winnow it back out. You know, the traditional method of separating uh, grass husks from the grain, they would winnow the tea leaves back out and put the tea leaves over there and the flour over there and the sugar over there just to keep up the practice. They might have three bags, but no, no, chuck them all in the one bag. My name is Barry Abbott anyway, from Wallace Rockhold, but I was born at Enbury Station, 1944. And I used to be with my grandfather, old Chimley, and he was an old yard builder, you know, all wooden posts and things like that. No chainsaw, only old crosscut saw and a hacks, crowbar and a shovel and a brazen bit to drill a hole through the post. There was no boundary fences before. We knew where the boundary was and every time it rains, people on a horse pack and the pack horse, no mother cars, Go around all the boundary, whichever place you're working for. Make sure your cattle not going to the next lot. If they did go, you follow them and turn up to the next station, tell them what you've done, what you're doing, and what you're taking back. Nine must have been 60. That is the worst drought I've been to. Seven years drought, that is. Seven years you might see rain going somewhere, you know, just a little storm. But that's nothing. Mm. And what happened to the country when that happened? Country, well, we had a lot of Spinifex and had a lot of cattle on the place. Cattle was living off the Spinifex, the bushes, cashew bush and things like that, you know. And cattle was real poor, skin and bone. They had a, an old scoop, had a camel and a chain, but one bloke leading the camel to pull straight, another one working the scoop. You dig into the dirt, go along, then tip it over, turn around, come back the other way. Keep on digging it so you can get a soakage for cattle. Water, because a lot of the water is going dry and salty. 
Things changed in the 1970s when the Aboriginal stockmen were granted equal pay rather than rations and dog bones. And at the same time, pastoral practices changed and changed forever. It was a disaster for Aboriginal communities, but that's another story Hindsight's explored in a previous series. So let's finish then by considering the enduring connection the desert has with the sacred and how this was transformed in the 20th century. I think what's interesting in the 20th century was a return of the idea of the sacred mysticism in a variety of forms which are very different uh, from the Judeo-Christian one. On such occasions he would stand quite still, gazing perhaps at some branch or at the earth at his feet. There was a kind of nothingness outside him and within also. In a little while he would tremble and strange sudden tears would come into his eyes. He would shake them away and look round at the innocent uninhabited land. It had come nearer to him in those moments of oblivion as if by contact with its very heart his own blood became warmer, his own heart trembled and his eyes now clear and bright stared wonderingly into the distance. The spectre had been partly communicated. The Desert Horizon, Grant Watson. So, for example, you have Grant Watson in the early years of the 20th century who actually came to be on an anthropological expedition in northwestern Australia, came early and spent six weeks out near Kalgoorlie, partly at mining places, but also taking little adventure walks out into the desert. And he had this amazing experience of a kind of animism, a sense of a mysterious power that was there, which threatened his whole European value system. The whole idea of society and the European values of rationalism suddenly began to crumble in the face of this. And he's very much um, perturbed by this. And he wrote some very, very interesting novels that have been very largely neglected, unfortunately, and are out of print, about this experience whereby he felt his soul was being battled for by the forces of European civilization on the one hand and this mysterious animism of the desert. And in a different way, I think, that keeps recurring. Whether people go there because they want that experience and therefore they find it, or whether it comes upon them unwanted, is very difficult to say. But you find it recurring in literature, all through popping up through the 20th century. So the desert is a place where you find meaning for yourself, very much as an individual. It's like you get absorbed by the land and nature. You just don't think of anything else except that, and that's what it is. I just get, um, I go inside that little book, that world, you know, that I, and just get absorbed by it and allow it to just embrace you, you know, without um, taking anything negative. And like I don't wear any shoes or anything like that. I'm bare feet, and I just have a sort of very loose clothes on and it's just allowing nature to um, embrace you it's allowing the earth to embrace you and the land and the you know the animals and the environment um you're in an unknown universe you know with the two together you know just floating around and coming back to earth and you know yeah so 